materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules. Welcome, everyone, to Curve Your Enthusiasm. I'm your host, Royce Mendez, Executive Director and Senior Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. My usual co-host, Ian Pollack, Global Head of Fixed Strategy, is off this week, but I'm not alone. I'm thrilled to be joined today by a special guest on the program. Before I introduce her, however, let's do a quick rundown of what was announced earlier this week in the Government of Canada's fiscal snapshot. Obviously, everyone is talking about the headline deficit reading of $343 billion this year. But once you get past the initial gut reaction of saying, wow, that is a really huge number, you have to remember that this deficit is being driven by a shock to the economy like nothing we've experienced in our lifetimes. The initial hits to employment and business activity were orders of magnitude worse than the 2008-2009 financial crisis and occurred at a much, much faster pace. The consensus on Bay Street heading into the snapshot was for a slightly narrower deficit, but that was in large part because we didn't know there would be additional money allocated to the wage subsidy program and the traditional employment insurance scheme. The new spending suggests to me that we'll see the government trying to phase out the CERB after the extension runs out and transition support towards the wage subsidy and EI programs. I'd expect some sort of announcement in the next month or so since the wage subsidies were supposed to expire at the end of August. The other big news came from the drastic changes in the debt management strategy towards issuing far more in the long end of the curve. As Ian mentioned in his research, this probably means that Canadian duration has little chance of outperforming its G7 peers, particularly since the additional issuance is focused in the parts of the curve which are most elastic to global rates. The move also calls into question the Bank of Canada's future QE considerations. We had expected that the central bank would transition its large-scale asset purchase program towards a yield curve control method, focusing on the five-year sector, since many mortgages in Canada are priced off of that part of the curve. But the increased issuance in 10s and 30s might mean that the central bank needs to pivot to keep long rates tamped down. Anyways, I'll leave it there and introduce our special guest for today's episode, who will provide us with her expert takeaways from this week's snapshot, the Honorable Lisa Raitt, former Minister of Natural Resources, Minister of Labor, and Minister of Transportation, and now a Vice Chair at CIBC Capital Markets. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you very much, Royce. Good to be here. By the way, for those wondering, she did tell me I could call her Lisa. I asked permission. <laughs> no problem. Lisa, what stood out to you most in the release? Well, there's a lot of information, but there's not a lot of plan. Um, if you contrast what uh, the Minister of Finance stood up in the, in the House and delivered yesterday with what the Chancellor of the Exchequer stood up in his house in London yesterday um, and announced, you'll see a stark difference. Our government here in Canada is still trying to figure out how much money 
it is that is actually being spent, what the fiscal situation looks like, and very little in terms of what they're going to do next. And in London yesterday, it was all about we are going to support jobs, we are going to protect jobs, and we're going to encourage job creation. So I would say that yesterday was a bit of a half step and that the big step to come is, okay, now that we know the damage, how are we going to make sure that the damage is, is stemmed, first of all, and then secondly, how are we going to make sure that we grow the economy again? What were your political takeaways? And maybe talk about what you see as some of the priorities of the government. First of all, uh, putting on my political and partisan hat, I would say that running an election on what kind of plan we have in order to restore the economy and to bring us back to pre-COVID days it would be an excellent platform. And I'm sure that their parties are trying to figure out right now whether or not this is something that should be put to the electorate in the form of an election. Everyone competes, not on how much money you spent, but on how you plan on, on bringing us through this, through this pandemic and the, uh, the economic result. So if I take a look yesterday, Royce, at what was announced, I would, um, for listeners, I, I would give you my perspective as a, as a former critic and a former minister. The way they presented it is pretty simple when you look at it. It's 153 pages, which is a slog to get through. But for anyone who's wanting to check out what's going on, it's the last 25 pages that's the most important because that's where they actually just give you the numbers and the detail as to what they've done and what they're going to do. So they start with where they said in the economic financial update in 2019 what the deficit would be next year, and that's $28.1 billion, which, by the way, as a conservative, I've, I was completely lighting my hair on fire. What a terrible number. Little did I know what we'd be facing in the months before and after. The, the first batch of, of numbers that come out from the government in terms of showing just what kind of fiscal hole we're in are the numbers associated with economic and fiscal developments. So the kinds of things that have had to happen, the loss of revenues, the what they've done in taxes in terms of deferring payment. And they say that that's going to cost about $81 billion. After that, they tell you how much their COVID-19 response has cost to date, and they go through all of the actions that they've taken, and that comes out to about $227, $228 billion. And that third batch is what I find interesting, are policy actions that they've taken that they haven't announced, that they've come in to uh, say it's about $9 billion. Why I find that interesting is this is, I believe, what would have been in Bill Morneau's budget had he been able to present the 2020 budget in the normal time frame of March of 2020. And it's in there you see some non-COVID things that they were going to try to do from a policy point of view. So you see the fact that they want to set up sustainable finance public-private commission to bring forward and to make Canada a market for sustainable finance. And you see the fact that they're focusing on mining, that they're going to renew a program that I had years ago when I was at Natural Resources called the GEM program that actually helps you map the, the minerals and the resources in the north for the use of, of other companies so that the, the developers have a, a better idea. The way we used to say it is, we will map out the haystacks and it's up to the companies to find the needles. So it's in that tranche that I find some interesting information as well as to how the normal functioning of the country is supposed to happen in the economy. Heavy on, on environmental matters, um, with a fair amount of, of money in there for the um, resources area as well. So 
those three buckets are incredibly important. Those three buckets are things that could change. We may need to spend more money on COVID. They're definitely going to come up with different policy actions. And then the, the third one uh, about the economic and fiscal developments, it'll be interesting to see how that's going to, to bounce around in terms of how people are reacting. The last thing I would say is, um, in terms of the Canada emergency benefit, it is noted in the document that they have increased how much money they think they're going to have to spend in EI, employment insurance, in September as a result of people transitioning off of CERB. So to me, at the very least, in the Department of Finance, they don't think that they're going to be extending the CERB beyond the end of September or the amount of weeks that they've already promised to Canadians. That's great and aligns with our economics group's long-standing belief that we'll need to see a transition away from the CERB and towards programs that better align with incentives during the recovery. Now, you talked about political parties using different recovery plans for potential election platforms, but I want to know how much you think the Canadian electorate cares about the actual level of the debt or deficits versus how much they're worried about support being there through what we expect to be a very long and winding recovery. Yeah, that's, uh, first of all, I think Canadians can care about both um, and not have to be in one camp or another. They can care about the debt and the deficit and they can care about where the future is bringing you. And one thing that we've been starting to notice um, here in Canada is the level of anxiety and impatience that Canadians are expressing with one another. And I don't mean in the, the big protests that are happening. Notice yourself in your day-to-day -day contact, whether or not people have a bit of a shorter fuse. And psychologists are now looking at it and, and nodding and saying, yeah, we are noticing that there, there is this pent-up emotion. And it's a lot of stress on people, hearing about these large numbers, worrying about how we're ever going to dig out of it, if should we dig out of it. And finally, what's going to happen next? Pandemic, what's happening in the United States? So there's a lot, a lot of uncertainty. But I would say this. I would say that Canadians are going to be concerned about things that matter to their pocketbook in their house. So they're going to care very much about whether or not they're going to have a, a steady job, what's going to happen to their company, and whether or not they can continue to live their life the way that they're, they had lived their life pre-COVID. And the other thing that I would, I would say as well, and it's not by any means, um, uh, it's an observation from a politician, a former politician, myself, and one that's been, one that's been mentioned many times in the political world, which is, which is this, and it's not a slag on Canadians at all, but it's, it's just a truism. If you're talking about a scandal, for example, that involves a $16 glass of orange juice, or somebody writing a check for $90,000 for expenses, Canadians can understand what that number is. And they know, they have a, a point of reference, right? Oh my gosh, who would pay $15 for a glass of orange juice? That's ridiculous, how dare they do that? But the minute you get into these humongous numbers uh, in the billions, in the hundreds of billions, there's really not a big difference between 23 billion and 300 billion. It's just another set of numbers for them and they have no grasp, therefore, um, they're not as going. They're not going to be as in touch with what a three hundred billion dollar debt or deficit is going to be in a trillion dollar debt. It's going to be scary numbers, but they're not going to feel it themselves. What is closer to them is how they're going to be able to live day to day. So if you see taxes go up, if you see their kids not getting jobs, if they have uh, if they have 
continued problems in their work, then they're going to react to that as opposed to the bigger question. It doesn't mean they don't care about it. It just means it's not as close to their understanding of their world right now. I'm going to pick out one word you said, and it was taxes. You know, the government is not committing to raising taxes or cutting program spending just yet. And a lot of mainstream economists would say that that's probably the right thing to do right now. Let's not focus on austerity or tightening our belts just yet. Let's focus on supporting the economy because we know there are large multipliers involved with stimulus when the economy is in such a depressed state. We've seen estimates of every dollar of stimulus adds $1.50 of GDP and every dollar of tax hikes or program spending cuts could take as much as $1.50 out of GDP. Now, if you were in government at the moment, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, um, and you can put your political hat back on or partisan hat back mm -hmm. on. What would be the most important part of your recovery plan? So I would be giving you an idea of what a recovery plan would look like even before the Liberals have shown what a recovery plan looks like because there hasn't been one that's been put forward yet in, in our government system. What we are currently dealing with is understanding what the impact on the revenues is going to be. We're understanding how we're just going to make it through this incredibly difficult time and make sure individuals aren't going to be impacted to the point where they're going to really end up suffering. And hopefully all within a time frame so that we're just waiting to see if we can find a vaccine or a treatment that's going to work so that we can unleash the economy again and hope, hope that it goes back to what it was pre-COVID. But all bets are off as to whether or not that's going to happen. One of the things that was always of concern when it came to this kind of stimulus spending or spending in lieu of having an actual economy functioning right now is what happens in the size of government. Conservatives, of which I am one, are always concerned about the size of government. And they should be, because once you start expanding the sizes of departments within the government, it's sticky money. It's easy to pump in, really difficult to get out. And as a result, you may end up with what we call structural deficits, meaning that the deficit is baked into the numbers every year going forward. And without some kind of increase in revenues coming in, taxes, royalties, however else you can raise money from the Canadian public, then you're going to be stuck with these kinds of structural deficits. And during this COVID-19 response, there has been an increase in government, not just to deal with the pandemic, but in general. Like I said, there were different batches or different buckets of spending that the government released the last couple of days talking about where they saw their loss of revenues, where they're spending COVID-19 money, and the policy actions that they have taken as a result of changes that they've decided they wanted to make in fulfilling their mandate that they were given in the fall. And we have to make sure that as this stuff is rolled out, that the spending makes sense and that it's not just creating a larger bureaucracy and to give some context, um, I would say right now there's probably about 275,000 to 300,000 federal Canadian workers. And when I was in government and when I was a member of parliament, we used very shorthand calculation that each full-time equivalent FTE 
was worth about it cost about a hundred thousand dollars and that to me as you can see is is a fairly large number and that when you talk about uh, trying to curb costs um, it's raise taxes or shrink the size of government because there's no way you should be looking at the other transfers that the government makes which is to provinces or to individuals uh, or through the employment insurance system those should be sacred those should be red circled they should not be touched that's the approach that we took as conservatives so the only place there's only two places where you can work you can increase your revenues or you can decrease the cost of the government that you control and if the government you control is predominantly human resources costs then politically really difficult to run on the notion that you're going to shrink government conservatives will love it but everyone else will worry about whether or not their daughter or their son themselves is going to have have a job and that's the uh, that is the dilemma that politicians will face so conservatives will say we're going to look at the government and make sure that it's the right size and that we're we're controlling our costs the the liberals will deny that they're going to raise taxes but at the end if you can't grow the economy and by the way this isn't post World War II when the last time we saw this kind of spending it's a very different situation if you can't grow the economy there's only one place left to go and that's either well two places really to continue to run up hundred million dollar deficits every single year and add to the debt because money is cheap and worry about your debt to GDP and all those kinds of things that the Liberals tell themselves or you raise taxes and you try to bring down what the the difference is between what you're bringing in and what you're spending one of them um, has to move and it's it seems very simplistic but it, it truly is as straightforward as that that's really where the difficulty is it's worrying about how much of this year's deficit is going to continue for years into the future. The hope is that the pandemic-related spending will automatically almost wind itself down as the economy starts to recover. But as you point out, it's possible that some of this spending lingers for longer than we might like. You know, we've talked about in CIBC economics not needing to raise taxes or cut program spending because if you take a one-time hit to the deficit and even if it's large or huge like it is projected to be for this fiscal year you can work that down if your economy is growing faster than your debt is compounding and over the next 10 years we certainly expect that to be true if the government is borrowing at the moment for 10 years at 0.6 or 0.7 percent that's what it's compounding at each year but we expect the economy to grow at roughly 4% in terms of nominal GDP. The problem is if you can't bring those deficits back down because then you start to have an issue with debt sustainability. And that's, I guess, the crux of this conversation is when we see this update, which includes multiple years, the question is how much of the deficit is going to go away next year? You know, I could argue that we might still be in a position where pandemic-related spending is necessary, but hopefully by 2022, we have a vaccine, and a lot of this is in the rearview mirror. Can we see the government commit to lowering that deficit and not only, as you say, commit to having a stable debt-to-GDP ratio, but really commit to see it fall because 
moving forward, you know, it's going to be difficult with this large debt pile that we've accumulated for the government to enact some of the policies that it believed was in its mandate. For example, universal pharmacare. You know, you've spent a lot of money on other things now. It, it, it will be incumbent at some point to figure out how we move away from worrying about GDP and the economy at the moment, which I think all mainstream economists agree is the right thing to do, to discussing the fiscal sustainability moving forward. Now time for our last question. If there is ever a prime minister rate, are you going to promise to come back on our show? Well, uh, it's not going to be me, Royce. Maybe one of my kids may want to do it one day. That seems to be the way things are done here in Canada. But my time in politics is was a wonderful time. Uh, 11 years is a long time. And, and it's kind of, we kind of talk about it in the sense of how you do prison time. You know, I did my 11 years. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm happy to be out. And I'm really enjoying being back into the, the real world, I have to say. Um, there's a lot of challenges that are going to be facing political parties and leadership in this country. They have to make sure that they're going to put aside ideologies and do the best that they can to bring us into what a post-COVID world is going to look like. And it's got to be a realization as well that it's not going to look like the way it did prior to us all going home from work in early March. It's going to be a far different world and governments are going to have to be nimble and they're going to have to be able to meet the people where they need to be met. Well, we're happy that you're staying here with us at CIBC Capital Markets. I'm going to leave it there. We thank everyone who tuned in this week and I'll leave you with the quote, no bonds were hurt in the making of this episode. The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets. And we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. This communication, including any attachments, is confidential and has been prepared by the Rates Strategy Desk within the Global Markets Group at CIBC Capital Markets. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. Services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce include corporate lending services, foreign exchange, money market instruments, structured notes, interest rate products, and OTC derivatives. CIBC's foreign exchange disclosure statement relating to guidelines contained in the FX Global Code can be found at www.cibccm.com slash FX Disclosure. Other products and services such as exchange-traded equity and equity options, fixed income securities, are offered through directly or indirectly held subsidiaries of CIBC as indicated below. The contents of this communication are based on macro and yield curve analysis, market events, and general institutional desk discussion. The authors of this communication is not a research analyst, and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department, nor should it be construed as a research report. The authors of this communication is not a person or company with actual, implied, or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in the communication. The commentary and any attachments, other than any attached CIBC World Markets Inc. branded research reports and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual authors. 
written except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. The authors may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to the securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. The contents of this message are tailored for particular client needs, and accordingly, this message is intended for the specific recipient only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. If you are not the intended recipient, please reply to this email and delete this communication and any copies without forwarding them. Distribution in Hong Kong this communication has been approved and is issued in Hong Kong by Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch, a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO, to professional investors, as defined in clauses A to H of the definition thereof set out in Schedule 1 of the SFO. Any recipient in Hong Kong who has any questions or requires further information on any matters arising from or relating to this communication should contact Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch at Suite 3602, Cheung Kong Center, 2 Queens Road Central, Hong Kong. Telephone number 852-2841-6111. Distribution in Singapore. This communication is intended solely for distribution to accredited investors, expert investors, and institutional investors, each an eligible recipients. Eligible recipients should contact Danny Tan at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Singapore Branch at 16 Collier Quay, number 04-02, Singapore, 049318. Telephone number 65-6423-3806. In respect of any matter arising from or in connection with this report. Distribution in Japan. This communication is distributed in Japan by CIBC World Markets, Japan, Inc. Distribution in Australia. Communications concerning derivatives and foreign exchange contracts are distributed in Australia to professional investors within the meaning of the Corporations Act 2001 by CIBC World Markets Inc. Communications concerning securities are distributed in Australia by CIBC Australia Limited. License number 240603, ACN 0006325626 to CIBC Capital Markets Clients. CIBC World Markets Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. In the United States, CIBC World Markets Corps is a member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and the Securities Investor Protection Fund. CIBC World Markets Place is authorized by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority. CIBC World Markets Securities Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Sydney Branch, ABN 33608-235-847, is an authorized foreign bank branch regulated by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA. CIBC Australia Limited, AFSL number 240603, is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. CIBC World Markets Japan, Inc. is a member of the Japanese Securities Dealer Association. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch, is a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, CAP 571. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore Branch is an offshore bank licensed and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Unauthorized use, distribution, duplication, or disclosure without the prior written permission of CIBC World Markets, Inc. is prohibited and may result in prosecution.